Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. I'm Haley Wooden. Later on, Deepak Anand from Cannabis Compliance will walk us through the BC government's marijuana marketing license and whether it aligns with the federal government's marketing rules. BIV is once again looking to recognize BC's outstanding entrepreneurs, executives, managers, and professionals in public, private, and nonprofit sectors who are ahead of their time. Nominations for the 2018 40 Under 40 Awards close July 30th. So go ahead and visit BIV.com slash events for details. A wide range of innovative, disruptive technologies are making payments and transactions easier for businesses. On September 13th, the BIV's FinTech panel We'll look at how small and medium-sized businesses can make informed decisions in this new landscape. Tickets and information are available at BIV.com slash events. But coming up first, Dan Hara, he's the author of the province's new report on modernizing BC's tax industry. He's going to join the show next. On Thursday, the province released a long-awaited report on the BC taxi industry. The report, authored by industry expert Dan Hara, outlined the challenges when it comes to modernizing the way we use taxis. The BC government has accepted some of the report's recommendations, and joining us from YVR, he's going to be off to his hometown of Ottawa in just a few moments. He's made time for us, though. It is Dan Hara. He's president of Hara Associates Incorporated. Dan, thanks for joining us on the show. Glad to be here. So before we get into the nitty gritty of it, uh, did you walk away from this endeavor feeling as if the BC taxi industry is ready to modernize and, and maybe enter a bit of a different era of transportation now? I think they're certainly ready to modernize. Uh, and uh, of course, they have to modernize to compete. Uh, some of the submissions by the companies uh, paralleled items that came up in discussion and are now reflecting our report. At least one of the two taxi associations endorsed the uh, expansion of the number of licenses, for example. So how much, though, uh, of an aberration is, is BC when it comes to, I guess, the efforts to modernize versus some of the other jurisdictions that are out there, especially in Canada and maybe the rest of North America? Well, if we're talking about modernizing the taxi industry, uh, BC, I think, is really in taking the lead. What normally happens is that uh, uh, regimes that open it up for Uber and Lyft don't do anything about taxicab regulation. They just let them sit and stew in their own juices. And uh, this is a disservice to consumers, some of whom would like a taxi if it wasn't trouble getting it during peak times. So Mm -hmm. uh, this uh, government appears to be willing to actually modernize the tax industry at the same time so consumers get a full choice. Yeah, and the report you put together, it highlights sort of the at the core of this is supply. At present, before some of the recommendations take hold in, here in BC, what have been some of the constraints on supply, be it regulatory constraints or even economic constraints? Well, the biggest one is the old-fashioned approach to controlling uh, the number of taxis. There are historical reasons ranging from the Great Depression of the 1930s why that is done. But having a fixed number doesn't make sense in the modern world. Yeah, so the biggest obstacle is not having part-time taxis. uh, It's very difficult in BC to have a part-time taxi, even if you manage to get a special arrangement. The insurance is such that there's no provision for it. You're either a taxi or not, and if you're a taxi, you have to pay full-time insurance. And in BC, insurance is a huge cost. That's just it, because you do bring this up with regards to what we need to see with regards to modernization 
for the insurance products that we have here. What are you recommending in the report with regards to insurance modernization? Well, it should be based on usage, so uh, either trips or hours, so that you only pay for the commercial time that you do. What are the other recommendations that the province is uh, accepting from your report, though? And I think this is a very interesting one here, is flexibility when it comes to pricing. They're going to allow uh, discounts for all purchases made through taxi apps going forward. What do you make of the uh, this recommendation here? Why is this an important thing with regards to the modernization of the taxi industry? Well, first of all, it's good for customers. Clearly, for those who are willing to and able to shift their their ride uh, to 10 o'clock instead of 9 o'clock and avoid the rush, they're going to get a cheaper rate. What people had to understand on the industry side was they could actually make more money with cheaper rates. And we see with Uber and Lyft, that's exactly what they do. They lower their price on the off-peak and they keep their vehicles busy. So from the industry side, they can end up making more money per hour than sitting around idle, which is what happens now. Mm-hmm. Does that problem start to get complicated, though, when, say, government starts considering perhaps having a a minimum amount Uber or Lyft employees need to be paid, which then starts to affect how much they charge? It, it, it changes the dynamics. I'm not sure how it changes the dynamic. It is literally dynamic pricing hmm. so that uh, uh, each system, whether it's Uber, Lyft, or the taxis, uh, raises or lowers the price in response to uh, demand. And it, it, well, it, while we're on the topic of, I guess, uh, companies that are known for apps, one of the recommendations you have for the industry, though, is a regulatory standard for apps. And, and I'm wondering what kind of conditions do you feel should be applied to the uh, standards that we have here in this province going forward? Well, first of all, a customer should be able to know what they're contracting for. So it should be have a, either an estimated price or a fixed price that's clear for the customer. The second thing is uh, accuracy. Even Uber's system, which is well developed by now, makes mistakes. So we have to have a reasonable amount of accuracy. So in addition to knowing uh, what you're paying and having some assurance that it's accurate, we need to uh, keep records, provide that record so that if there is a problem, the customer can pursue it. Those are the key ones. Mm-hmm. I I want to pick up on something you said earlier, which is the taxi industry. It needs to modernize if it wants to compete. And obviously, the provincial government now is looking at implementing and acting on some of your recommendations. But I'm I'm curious, too, what happens if, when, big names like Uber and Lyft come, they have widespread market recognition Around the world, are you seeing taxi industries successfully compete when ride-hailing or other transportation services are introduced into the mix? Well, the fact is they're different products, so the taxis always survive. They're not necessarily healthy in the process, Mm. but we don't see generally taxis being removed from the street when Uber and Lyft come in. So if we can uh, remove the regulatory obstacles to them cooperating, for example, then they can uh, launch their own apps that are actually effective. Taxi apps are improving, but they don't really uh, provide the same level of service yet. They will, but no one's going to put any money into them unless the rules are clear enough that they can actually do it. 
So we'll leave you off with this, Dan. We, we know that you have a flight to catch back to Ottawa, but uh, one of the other recommendations that the province is taking from your report is ensuring that the pas- Passenger Transportation Board has better access to data. Why is this going forward going to be such an important thing for the PTB to have here in British Columbia? Well, there's two different tracks, and they both come down to the same thing of needing the data. One is that uh, regulators don't have very much information Uh, or cities for that matter, on where cars are going or how much demand is actually needed. And that's a little silly in our modern age because you know everything, or somebody knows everything. (laughs) The taxi systems like Uber and Lyft collect this data automatically, and it's just deleted after 90 days. Uh, So that should be shared. And the other way to look at it is for security and safety. You have uh, this information, we're tracking taxis by GPS. Let's say there's an unfortunate sexual assault complaint. We'd like to know the vehicle involved. The old way, we've got to go and look at those paper trip sheets. It can take days or weeks of somebody sorting through paper records at a taxi company office. When in reality, we have it in uh, minutes by computer and the regulator should be able to respond quickly working with the police on incidents like that. And we see in other jurisdictions where this is done, they can instantly identify maybe the one or two taxis in the place and the time that's suggested uh, by the complainant. And suddenly we know, especially in combination with cameras in the taxis. Well, Dan, very thorough report, very interesting stuff. And we are going to be watching how the government goes forward with other recommendations here. I want to thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm pleased to be here. And I apologize again. Oh, no worries at all. (laughs) That's Dan Hara, president of Hara Associates Incorporated. From ride hailing in British Columbia to recreational cannabis in British Columbia, we're going to look at how the province's framework for recreational cannabis is emerging with Deepak Anand after this. We have more clarity now about how BC proposes to regulate recreational marijuana. July has seen a number of announcements from the BC government from which licensed producers will provide supply in the province to how private retail licensing will work. But it comes amid criticisms that BC is lagging behind other provinces with less than three months to go before October 17th. We're joined today by Deepak Anand, Vice President of Government Relations at Cannabis Compliance to lend more insight into this. Deepak, good to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. I want to start by asking you where we are right now. Are we lagging behind? Have we caught up to some extent after the last couple of weeks of announcements? How far ahead is BC? Well, I think uh, with the Ontario elections, uh, by default, I think we've, we've, we've sort of gone further ahead in that uh, uh, the Ford government has still um, been sort of flip-flopping on this file in Ontario, and uh, they haven't really made a lot of decisions there in that province. So we're certainly ahead from that perspective just by sheer luck. Um, but uh, nonetheless, I mean, we've had uh, some announcements over the past couple of weeks, as you mentioned, from our provincial government in BC indicating uh, Similar bit more information in terms of how people can go about submitting applications, what the criteria and thresholds will be, um, perhaps what the different kinds of licenses will be. So we've certainly got a little bit more clarity, even though the portal for applications hasn't been opened yet, and certainly we can't make any submissions just yet. Um, but there's certainly been a lot more clarity from the provincial government in terms of the direction in which they're going on this file. 
And on the topic of clarity, one of the interesting things that was revealed here is this so-called marketing license that they're going to allow in British Columbia. Because right now, I, I think a lot of these companies, it, they are kind of trapped. I mean, how do you really market your product other than word of mouth or just a, a sticker that you're going to be able to put on this plain packaging? What do you see for British Columbia and I guess the future of the market here with this availability of this so-called marketing license? Yeah, absolutely. And that sticker, by the way, Tyler, is going to be controlled in terms of what color it can be, how big the logos can be, and what you put on that sticker, too. So uh, certainly very limiting there. Uh, Listen, when it came out, it was very interesting uh, sort of uh, to note that the provincial government chose to use the word marketing, given that the Cannabis Act actually doesn't allow on a federal level for a lot of marketing activities to take place. But essentially what this license uh, is intended to be, and again, we don't have a lot of information around uh, around what it's going to entail and how you can apply, but we do know it's called a marketing license and the provincial government intends to allow marketers, as they term it, uh, the ability to be able to be a liaison between licensed producers that are manufacturing products uh, related to cannabis and retail stores that are, are selling cannabis. So. Uh, theoretically, it's this license that anybody can apply for. You don't need to be involved in the cannabis industry, per se, to, to apply for it. You, you can be outside of that space. Uh, and you can be this bridge between uh, retailers and, and manufacturers, essentially, is what it's aimed at. Yeah, but we have, of course, a wholesale monopoly here in BC. So I'm curious what exactly these marketers would be marketing and who they'd be marketing it to. Uh, yeah, I mean, and as I said, there's, you know, so many restrictions in the Cannabis Act of what you can and cannot say and where you can advertise this information to. But I think what it's intended to be is, you know, it's almost uh, akin to an agent, uh, much like they have an alcohol that acts as a middleman between the wholesaler, um, which is in this case BCLDB, uh, as well as, uh, you know, some of the retailers, which would be the private liquor stores. And it's sort of, it's a similar comparison, although alcohol doesn't call it a marketer. I mean, they wouldn't dare use that term. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, so I think it's supposed to be this bridge that will give information to retailers in terms of what the manufacturers intend to do. And uh, hopefully they'll comply with the Cannabis Act. I know that the federal government will be concerned uh, by this license being handed out, but but it's supposed to provide some, some 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 avenues for information sharing, if you will. And I think if it's designed correctly, it's probably a good vehicle uh, in the end. But we don't have a lot of information yet from the provincial government in terms of what that application process looks like and what, what criteria these marketers will be subject to. Now, Haley, I don't know about you, but I have noticed the industry has been creative about how they're marketing. Mm-hmm. A lot of it consists of uh, reaching out to business journalists and asking them to <laughs> write about their companies because, I, I mean, that actually gets their name sure. out there, though. So it, it is kind of interesting how they're approaching it that, that way, at least. Yeah, for sure. You have to get creative uh, because, I mean, we've talked to you before, Deepak, too, in terms of products, having your brands on things that aren't even related to cannabis. All of that is highly, highly regulated. Yeah, absolutely. And we've, we've seen some of the incumbents, whether it be, uh, you know, Tweed uh, through Canopy Growth or Aurora or, or Afri or, or, or Tilray, some of the bigger names get, uh, get their branding out there in terms of swag. And there was this big debate in the Senate at one point where they wanted to eliminate swag. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been fortunate that that didn't pass and go through. But uh, we've certainly seen a lot of promotion being done on uh, the medical brands uh, so far, and what we've seen quite early on in Ottawa last week, just sent out a press release saying they weren't happy with it, uh, was this advertising being done through music festivals and, and, and things like that. And, and Health Canada did put out a warning notice on that last week saying they weren't happy that licensed producers were, uh, were doing this and actually asked them to stop doing it. So 
we have seen uh, certainly through business journalists, through through uh, all of the traditional marketing avenues, some information being pushed out. We've seen it being pushed out on medical, and and we've also now been seeing it pushed out on the non-medical brands, which come October 17th is going to come to a grinding halt. Mm-hmm. We even have uh, some of the companies hiring, uh, say, a chief evangelism officer in the form of Kiss <laughs> frontman uh, Gene Simmons, which is an interesting thing. I, I don't yeah. know exactly what, what that. CEO would be, I guess, the the acronym there, which is um, <laughs> curious. But uh, Deepak, if we're talking about maybe the, the retail model here in BC, we, we do have some clarity there as well. And you mentioned the Ontario government earlier. There is going to be a cap on the number of stores, at least at the outset, uh, that will be selling this stuff. We did find out from the BC government that there is not necessarily going to be a limit on the number of stores. How is this system actually going to work here in British Columbia? Yeah, so I mean, what we do know is uh, Camelus is going to have the first store in BC that's, that's government run. Uh, that's going to be ready apparently for October 17th. Um, in addition to that, there's going to be no cap on the total number of stores that are going to be allowed in the province. Uh, but we do know that any one group can have up to a maximum of eight stores. So if you're running a franchise, uh, and there's been many franchises uh, you know, over the years on the dispensary chain side evolve. Uh, but there's going to be a hard cap on that. So if you if you've got a certain brand and the maximum number of stores that you can have under that one brand is is eight across the province. Uh, there's also further restrictions on licensed producers in terms of what they can do. So uh, licensed producers that are currently federally authorized to produce uh, cannabis uh, for both medical and now non-medical purposes uh, are not allowed to have stores, or they're allowed to have stores, but they can't actually carry their own product. So. Uh, it's an avenue by which uh, the BC government is hoping to sort of curtail sort of this, this self-promotion by licensed producers, uh, and and we'll see how that eventually rolls out. But that's certainly one of the one of the avenues in retail that's out there. Uh, we know there's going to be a mixed model of both private and public stores, uh, w- which is good from a certain perspective. Uh, well, we've seen municipalities as well, Tyler, um, you know, sort of say no. I mean, we saw West Vancouver, we've seen Richmond, we've seen North Vancouver come out and say they don't want any cannabis retail in their municipalities whatsoever, which is another interesting twist to this whole story. Yeah, that is interesting. And of course, we were chatting earlier about Ford's election in Ontario. We have municipal elections coming up October 20th here with a lot of... be controversial whatsoever, Haley. (laughs) I I don't know where you're going. (laughs) No, yeah, exactly. Well, a lot of mayors in at least Greater Vancouver choosing not to run. So I'm curious, Deepak, is cannabis and cannabis bylaws, are those going to be key issues in some communities? And might we see some municipalities maybe change their minds one way or the other? Oh, I think so, Haley. I mean, if you look at it from, you know, I'll take Richmond as an example uh, of this, where, uh, you know, the community in general has been very unsupportive towards cannabis in general. And so the mayor has taken the position that they don't want any retail on their uh, on their sort of uh, in their in their municipality. The challenge is that, you know, by by eliminating retail, it's not like they're blocking out cannabis at all. I mean, if you look at from a federal perspective and a government perspective, uh, you know, we've the war on drugs has failed from a public policy perspective. It's not like people in Richmond aren't using cannabis. What's happening now is you've taken that market that would have been subject to taxation and revenue to the municipal government and, and, and put it underground. So, it's, you know, let's not pretend like it's not happening. It's just happening underground. Uh, further than that, yesterday I saw um, Hotels.com put out a release saying, uh, one of the things that Chinese tourists were most looking forward to by coming to Canada was was actually the ability to be able to use cannabis because it's going to be legal for non-medical purposes. So mm-hmm. that puts an interesting twist on this whole thing once again in terms of 
you know, are you now missing out on that market where, you know, Richmond's got, you know, a massive number of Chinese outlets in terms of whether it be stores, you know, food uh, sort of avenues, all of that. And are they going to be missing out on cannabis revenue, given that clearly Chinese tourists are now looking forward to using non-medical cannabis in BC and, and on their travels to Canada? I, the thing that I find so curious, though, is the reason that there's been a lot of pushback from, you know, Richmond residents is they don't like the idea of the, this drug being used within their community. But the very fact of the matter is, is would not the black market just continue to proliferate throughout their community instead of having more of a controlled legal market if they actually allowed these retailers in? Absolutely, Tyler. I think what it is, is it's just a lack of education. I think that uh, what we've perhaps not done as well as we could have uh, from, a, from a government perspective as well as from an industry perspective is uh, just educate uh, sort of, you know, all the different communities within Canada in terms of what does this mean? What are we actually legalizing? How are, how are people going to be able to access it? I was at a, a town hall recently in Surrey and we had Bill Blair, who's now the Minister of, uh, of Voter Security and, and has been looking at the cannabis file there. Uh, and there was a lot of questions from, uh, you know, a number of com- different, you know, communities talking about uh, kids and access to cannabis. And so I don't think that the, the, the provincial and the federal governments have done as good a job as they could have on getting education out there in terms of who's going to be accessing this on October 17th. You know, one of the questions that came out from the community, and this happens in Richmond constantly, is are my kids going to be using cannabis now? And that's, you know, completely opposite to, to the, 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 the intents of basically legalization, which is we're now going to be taking it away from kids that have been having, you know, simple access to it. And, you know, your point on does the black market continue to flourish? Absolutely it does. I mean, uh, the fact that you take it underground and the fact that you pretend like it doesn't exist is, is what's happened in this country. That's what's failed. That's why we're legalizing this for non-medical purposes now. It's because we've, you know, Canada has historically had the highest rate of uh, underage access to cannabis in any country in the world. So we're just furthering that 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 sort of problem uh, by not allowing it to become more mainstream and normalizing in, in many ways. Mm-hmm. On the municipal front, and also to the point about normalizing this, we found out Kamloops is going to be getting the first government-run public cannabis store, in part due to the strength of the city's municipal bylaws around recreational marijuana, which, Deepak, for me, begs the question, well, how strong or weak, I guess, is Vancouver's regulatory regime? Because Vancouver seemed like maybe a, a good first place to have a government-run store, but it did not get that nod. Uh, yeah, and, and Vancouver's been interesting, Haley, where they've had something called the MMRU, which is the medical marijuana-related use, of, uh, which has been municipal licensing uh, for, uh, for cannabis for you know, almost a couple of years now, and they've basically licensed uh, dispensaries, if you will, uh, to be able to carry out business. And there's certainly been a number of uh, uh, sort of people that have not complied with that. They've been outlets that have, that have complied there. And so uh, now they're down there making some amendments to the MMRU program, given legalization. So, uh, you know, I think Vancouver has got a, a decent handle on things. I think they'll be able to make some amendments. They've got some really good zoning bylaws in place uh, that allow for Things like, you know, you can't have, to, you can't have a retail out that's close to uh, schools or playgrounds. And so they've got some basic infrastructure in place already. Uh, what I'm concerned about is, is, is cities like Surrey or Langley that have never had a, any tolerance to, to cannabis retail outlets whatsoever uh, that are now going to have to not just implement bylaws and procedures, but also get into zoning and, uh, and all, all those different things, which, you know, the clock is ticking. We're, we're less than 90 days away from legalization. So, uh, you know, are we going to have retail outlets ready for October 17th? It's, it's not looking like that in BC. 
That's an important question, and we'll have to keep having you back on the show to walk us through more updates. I'm sure there will be many at the provincial and municipal levels. But for now, Deepak, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's Deepak Anand, Vice President of Government Relations at Cannabis Compliance.